Chris Nicholson moved around a lot as a kid. He wasn't an army brat. His family just had a habit of building houses, selling them, and moving along. It probably wasn't easy to shift schools all the time, especially middle school, but it sure helped him learn to adapt and become good at meeting new people. After a long stint at Humana, Chris led the spin-out of Impulse Mobile as founder and CEO. The company tailors patient engagement to the individual, leveraging conversational AI, behavioral change models, and educational content. The last couple of years underlined the value of this approach as behavioral health needs increased and people embraced convenient digital solutions. Chris and his family are active volunteers in the community. That spirit pervades the company culture as well. And conveniently, work from home has meant Impulse offices could be used as storage facilities for donations to families in need. I'm David Williams, host of the Health Biz Podcast and president of Health Business Group, a strategy consulting firm that helps companies like Impulse Mobile develop robust growth plans. Reach out to me, dwilliams at healthbusinessgroup.com, if you'd like to discuss strategy for your own company. And while you're at it, please subscribe to the Health Biz Podcast on your favorite service. Chris Nicholson, CEO and co-founder of Impulse Mobile. Welcome to the Health Biz Podcast. Hello, David. How are you today? I am doing great, and uh, it's wonderful to have you uh, here. Love what your company uh, is doing. Very uh, relevant for for these times. Uh, but let's talk about how you got there first. And uh, first, we'll start with uh, I'm not a child psychologist or anything, but you know, what was your childhood like? Any any big influences that uh, stuck with you from you know from way back? I appreciate it. Um, I think probably the one, you know, most relevant, I think for me, when I tell people this, they're always so surprised is how many times I moved around as a child. Um, so not a military family whatsoever, as people typically think of like a military family moving every few years. Uh, but my, my grandfather, and my dad built homes uh, on the side. And so we'd build a house, you know, we would basically, you know, plant the grass, you know, as soon as the yard turned green, you put a for sale sign in it, and you move again, you do the whole thing again and again. And, um, and now I've been married 20 years, and my wife and I have even been in nine different homes over the 20 years we've been married. Um, and so that has continued to stick with me. And so, you know, when people typically say, where are you from, it's kind of a long answer um, yeah. to do that. But I think it's, it's created a lot of agility for me, I think, in my family and uh, being able to pick up and make new friends and meet new people and just sort of where we are is home, wherever that happens to be. So now it sounds like it may be like almost a genetic thing if you have it as well. Do you think that um, your folks when you were growing up had it sort of they're doing that on the side, but maybe it was for your own development that they wanted to move you around and make sure that you were able to handle any environment? It could be right. Acclimating into new schools, right. And, you know, two different, uh, you know, middle schools, different high school, like all those things through the course of it. And then, um, and I think it was great. I mean, probably one of the things that's made me successful, I think as a CEO is the ability to, you know, sort of, you know, make new friends and sort of meet new people wherever I'm at. So I love conferences. I love big events where there's lots of strangers, uh, which is just more people to meet. <laughs> great. Excellent. And then once you uh, got out of the house or houses or whatever, what, what did you do in terms of uh, pursuing your education? Yeah, so I stayed really Midwest. And so I grew up in uh, Northern Kentucky, Cincinnati, Ohio area, um, undergrad and, and uh, master's degree all in the Midwest at the University of Louisville in their entrepreneurial program. And um, love that area. And that, you know, afforded me the ability to connect with a lot of, you know, technology and healthcare related companies through Nashville, Louisville, Kentucky and Cincinnati that um, I travel a lot for work, you know, running some businesses in um, Chicago, New York, Dallas, um, California. And so it gave me the ability to sort of still be connected across the U.S., um, but have that home base, it was pretty central. 
No, that's good. Now, I noticed you had a few jobs for a little while before you took a longer stint at Humana. What were those first jobs like sort of getting on your feet? What was what was that about? Yeah, yeah. So I, um, you know, I, I worked way back when at uh, Alamo Rent-A-Car, right? In yeah. sales and the, and the guy at the counter that was trying to sell you insurance and gas, right? Sure. And uh, so that, again, sort of follows suit to meet lots of people and, and be as friendly as possible. Um, and then, you know, moved into really more of the technology space. And so I worked at uh, some tech startups like Lightyear Communications, uh, that was a reseller for MCI WorldCom and some of the largest players at the time. Um, you know, shortly thereafter, moved to Verizon on the wireless and mobile technology end, and then spent, as you said, that 15-year stint at Humana. Um, and I ran their communications practice, um, you know, their consulting practice. And then the last role there was the chief operating officer for the health and wellness division. And that was really, I think, part of the impetus to sort of lead to, you know, creating, you know, uh, impulse. And so I'm happy to talk more about that if you like. No, that's, that sounds good. I mean, I noticed even in those sort of first ones, it looked like there was sort of a, a communications and wireless and wellness component to it. So there's a bit of a through line uh, there somewhere. So yeah, love to hear a little bit about the kind of the, the Humana experience and obviously a big, a big organization, but also known for some doing some pretty innovative things as well. Um, they, they really are. Yeah. And, and when I started there, I was, uh, I was working at one of the technology um, companies and a recruiter called me from Humana. And I don't remember even how old I was at the time. And the recruiter, you know, basically was telling me about this job and they were said, Humana's, you know, building this innovation center and we want to interview you to come in this innovation group. And I said, well, the last time I've been to the doctor was probably like seven years ago, right? You've got that sort of mid 20, yeah. you know, 30 year old invincible male, right? That's never sick or has anything. And so I said, I know absolutely nothing about healthcare. And she was great. The recruiter said, that's the kind of people we want. They said, we have, you know, 8,000 people that know everything about healthcare. We don't have anybody that doesn't. And so it was really cool that they thought innovatively to bring people in from sort of outside of that circle uh, to build that team. And so, um, you know, they tested and developed new health plans, new forms of communication strategies, um, developing new ways to sort of to service, you know, consumers. And that's what led me really to this work with Impulse was that, you know, we were really reaching out. We were spending hundreds of millions of dollars a year, hundreds um, of millions of dollars a year in outbound print and mail and letters and postcards and statements that we never received any feedback from. Right. And so we basically dropped it in and we just sort of, you know, would pray, you know, that people would, you know, follow through on those preventive services and screenings and then look at some results at sort of marginal one or two percent influence. And so that was the driver that said, hey, I've got some background in mobile communications and technology. What can we do in the market, you know, to sort of bring those services in? Um, and instead of sort of building in-house, said, let's go, let's go start something externally and, and develop that as a new company and new product. That sounds good. So when, when you started Impulse, was there... Any sort of tie to Humana? Were they involved in it? Have they been a customer, a partner along the way? Or what was that transition like? Yeah, one of the first customers, actually. And so uh, the, the way that we did the journey was actually a company uh, that was already in the space uh, that we brought in to do some mobile communications and some pilots uh, that was doing messaging for, for um, restaurants and nightclubs and um, hotels and really sort of engaging in the consumer and retail space. Um, and then I was actually uh, put on the advisory board for that particular company for about a year and a half and really started to learn that, you know, bringing them into the healthcare fold. And I think, as you know, more than anybody, you know, healthcare communications and healthcare engagement is very different than retail. Mm -hmm. um, what we have to do with these words like HIPAA and compliance and SOC 2 yeah. and high trust and everything else. Right. And so, you know, really then, you know, the board said, hey, do you want to, you know, spin this out and actually create a new company dedicated to just healthcare? So it was a perfect combination, perfect timing. Um, in the organization. And I saw Humana grow. I think, you know, um, 
from a background perspective, you know, when I started Humana was 8,000 employees. And when I left, there were 58,000 employees. Yeah. And so some massive growth and change. And, and I think for me, I just took every opportunity in front of me that was new um, to basically, they said, hey, we've got a new division opening up. And I'll say, I'll do that. Hey, we've got a new product launching. I'm like, hey, I'll do that. Um, and sort of moving through the business uh, that made it really, really uh, fruitful experience. Now, when I look at uh, your site and get an understanding of your offering, I'm seeing at least three main components there. And you can you can maybe correct me or, or give it a little more explanation here. One is definitely AI that is uh, am- mm-hmm. that is emphasized strongly, and also behavior change models and education. And are those the right components? And how, you know, how do those things fit together? Yeah, yeah. We look at the framework in sort of four ways, right? And one is conversation, which is around conversation AI and engagement, and basically just saying we're easy to talk to, we're easy to engage. Uh, meaning, um, as an example, David, I may be engaging you to talk about a medication adherence or refill reminder. And you say, you know, uh, well, I can't afford it this month or I lost my job or my car broke down. And I just can't get there. Right. And so we're we're gathering these insights and sort of building the conversation, the dialogue. The second piece of that is what we refer to as knowledge, is that when we learn something about a barrier, then we say, well, how can we educate you? Can we connect you to lower cost alternatives? Can we connect you to um, you know, maybe transportation support or other things that can help you um, manage that particular condition in a better way. And then we have the pillar, which is focused on the journeys. And so we're mapping that out from a journey perspective, ultimately to get to the fourth pillar, which is the outcome. Did, did we help drive behavior change? Did we drive administrative cost savings for the, the planner partner? Did we improve the, the patient or member experience? And so those are really the four key components where we leverage technology, but ultimately to solve those big problems around the closing gaps in care, driving medication adherence, et cetera. Yeah, you sort of answered my next question, which is more of a devil's advocate question. But like, you know, who really cares about patient engagement anyway? You know, your typical, yeah. um, your typical patient or even provider would say, you know, the health plan doesn't want, they would kind of want to keep me away. I don't, I don't spend money. You know, I leave them alone. And you're like the guy in the, in the 20s who never goes to the doctor. That's my favorite kind of customer, right? They, they're satisfied because they're not doing anything. And I'm collecting all the, uh, all the <laughs> premiums. But I mean, who cares about patient engagement, really? Yeah, I do for one, right? I know you do ultimately, yeah. right? And then health plans, you know, providers, they really do. And I think that's the the misnomer is that health plans aren't as trusted as they really should be. And this is coming from a guy that lived inside of a health plan for 15 years, is these are really compassionate, caring people who are trying to, you know, get you to the services that you need, make you aware of those different products and, and services that they're offering, whether it's behavioral health, whether it's, you know, new, you know, FSA services, you know, commercial Medicaid, Medicare, they really want you to engage in those services because it's sort of a long game, right? Is if we can, if we can engage people now, we can get them into the preventive services and screenings, they're going to reduce costs long-term. So they're absolutely focused on cost savings, but it's on a much longer sort of continuum versus sort of claim by claim by claim. And so, you know, the way that think about it as a broader sort of population approach is that they can keep the broader population healthy within their membership pool, then they'll ultimately keep those claims cost down. So, um, and it's neat. I mean, it's a really uh, thoughtful group of people that I think are, um, you know, driving the right behaviors as much as possible. You have a big emphasis in the company about the, you know, unique approach to engagement for each individual. And so I'll give you another, you're getting the sense, I give you a few devil's advocate questions here, but, you know, I think about sometimes I've seen these things like a personalized, you know, nutrition program or something like that, you know, and I say like, does it always just recommend the broccoli, you know, and stay away from the French fries? I mean, how much of a difference is there across different characteristics like age, sex, health status, culture, race, ethnicity, language? All these are very, you know, they're big deal. But on the other hand, is it still sort of the same basic kinds of things? How much individualization 
and real customization does there need to be? Yeah, you hit the word, which was tailoring, right? And so we, we want to really understand the population, you know, in much more than a segmentation strategy. I think a lot of us have seen the data around zip code as, you know, one of the biggest determinants of health and health outcomes. That's absolutely true. Um, I think in, in most of our data, we look at we look at race, we look at gender, we look at other factors. There are really two that stand out of the sort of determinants that um, that are really around knowledge and education is a factor in sort of where are people in the continuum. That's a, a huge factor to access and really understanding healthcare where people aren't prepared or educated to sort of tackle those. So they just don't, they just don't engage. And so that's why one of those core pillars for us is knowledge where we bring people in we actually have, you know, health streaming information. So um, you can go in, you can take a course, or if you say you may, you know, not be, you know, able to afford it, we may provide services around financial education support. Again, linking to the things that are sort of most relevant for you to get the learning and the care that you need. Um, and then the other one is financial, is that really um, helping people understand what the cost components are, the transparency components. Um, and that's really one of the biggest barriers that we're seeing to people engaging, um, you know, in this world. Um, language, other factors, I think, are absolutely material. We do see, um, you know, a tremendous lift in uh, like our kind of creative, the photo novella or story based messaging where you get a text message and actually have stories and images uh, that's very common in, in a lot of Latin American countries. Um, we see actually engagement almost three to one for Spanish speakers and other you know, non-English speakers in some of those channels compared to English speakers. And so you know, those are the couple of factors that I think we see the most lift and that's primarily around SMS messaging, secure messaging, and even outbound voice uh, where they're not necessarily engaging in those channels. Um, we service about uh, 22 to 23 million Medicaid members uh, which are those underserved, you know, population today is where we're getting a lot of those data and a lot of those insights from. But, but I think it, you're really keen to sort of highlight that factor um, and that it, we are seeing um, some key elements stand out much more than others. You know, conversational AI is a really impressive technology. And at the same time, just speaking you know, for myself, when I encounter uh, such a technology, I usually don't like it. It almost never answers the question that I have. And then even when it breaks over into a chat, uh, with somebody, I would say pretty much invariably, I end up having to uh, have a, a phone call and not even a regular chat works. Now, you are clearly bringing in some other components and also uh, mm -hmm. some of the what you're trying to do on engagement lends itself more uh, to the conversational AI. But I'm just thinking about it from my own standpoint. Sure, and it, sure. It's not something I think I would embrace. Yeah, I think where, where it lends itself really well to healthcare. Um, is one, it increases the ability to get that access question and sort of reach, you know, to many, many more consumers where they don't want to wait on hold. You know, they've got sort of service challenges potentially, you know, at scale. And that's been exacerbated by sort of the events of the last few years um, that I think are playing into that. And so it plays a really good frontline sort of, you know, first line of defense and sort of first line of engagement for a lot of health plans and, and providers out there. What I think that we do that's really unique in that is that um, you know, the initial engagement where we're connecting with you, we're allowing for you to share information, building the dialogue, and we're storing that back as a consumer 360. So when you highlight, David, if maybe it's a financial challenge you're having with your, you know, picking up your medications, the next time we go to engage you, we know that already, right? And so, you know, we know that as sort of a qualifying event where a lot of the AI platforms look at each conversation in a discrete topic. So if you came back five minutes later and asked the same question, it's going to run through the same process. And we're trying to build knowledge about you as a, as a, as a partner um, so that when we engage you, we again continue to get smarter as we sort of step up the scale uh, through that. And so 
Um, the second component to that is a natural language understanding, which is really just allowing people to freely, you know, open, you know, open-ended responses. And so they can say things like, um, hey, can you move my appointment to next Thursday or can you reschedule it to next week? And then we have to say, well, what day is next week? And you start to build the, the conversational approach to that. Um, but in all of our scenarios, we allow for the fallback that you mentioned, which is to a live agent to have a one-to-one chat, but again, keeping it in the same channel that they started in. So that sounds fair. And I think you, you highlighted that the, the technology has gotten better and, and also sort of the, the, the human side of customer service has gotten worse over the last couple of years. I, I was just uh, before our interview uh, on hold with a financial institution. I'll, I'll just name it Vanguard, uh, where I think I'm an important customer. And I, usually they pick up the phone and answer it right away. And this is a transaction that can only be done uh, on the phone. And I was, on, I was on hold for an hour and 40 minutes. And uh, yeah. I definitely would have considered a chat, you know, if it were if it were possible. So you have that working for you uh, as well. And I think I think that's what's probably been a bit of the shift, right? Is that when people want convenience, they want the ability to, you know, sit on the couch still, stay on the phone, watch their show, be able to message back and forth, and not have to be on hold and work through those. So I think you're right. I think there's some market factors that have made it much more convenient um, than it was, you know, in previous years. Absolutely. Now everybody talks about the kind of challenges of, of mental health. Uh, for the last couple of years, I've seen it certainly, um, you know, among high school students, among people that have become you know, isolated and so on. But I think it's it's widespread. It, clearly, behavioral health is one of the things that, that you focus on. Have you seen a shift and how have you helped to address that? What are plans trying to do and how are, how are you helping them? We have. And it's a great call out. And I think, um, you know, just, you know, shows the sort of maturity and understanding that you have in the marketplace here, because um, so many programs, whether a health plan, almost all of them today have a mental or behavioral health component as part of the plan. And uh, the ability for us to sort of identify through that conversational platform when there may be a need um, that someone is either feeling stressed or depressed. We've done a lot of work around social isolation, um, helping people through uh, the last couple of years uh, through those stressful times. Um, and allowing for them to say, well, what are you doing to reduce stress? What are the things and mechanisms? And and when people sort of hit a certain tipping point or scale, we can connect them back to the services within their plans uh, where they then may get enrolled into a mental or behavioral health program. Uh, one of our clients, uh, Magellan uh, RX and Magellan Behavioral Health, uh, I applaud, um, who was one of the first to get out there and really leverage some of the digital channels to create the ability for people just to chat, just to text in and have that dialogue and that conversation one-to-one uh, with a therapist where they may not have had access to those services before. Um, and they stood up a program with us really quickly uh, to offer those services at no cost to first responders. Um, and so just really proud of them, I think, for getting out there and supporting the market um, over the last few years. You know, I we, we started off talking about uh, your upbringing and the house building and, uh, and so on and what you learned uh, from that. Just notice looking... Uh, at your background, it seems you're involved in a few volunteer activities now, and, and and I'm wondering if you could talk about you know some of the things that you're that you're doing, and also if you bring some of those things into kind of the culture of, of the company and involve people uh, as well. Oh, thank you, David, for the call out. The uh, we have, and I, I give a lot of credit to my to my wife and my children for um, you know helping to drive that, and I think um, has been something that that my parents really believed in. Um, and giving back. Um, you know, my wife's a big advocate in National Charity League. Um, you know, I support Poise Teen Charity. It's just, you know, two where we keep our kids very active. Uh, my daughter alone in, in hours were over 250 volunteer hours herself last year, you know, in food banks and other services, um, you know, really across, you know, Southern California and Utah. Um, and then, um, you know, from a work perspective, we've done a lot. We actually created 
a, a team um, internally in our company, you know, is about 150 individuals, um, you know, soon growing. And I'll, I'll maybe highlight that just a little bit. Um, and, you know, we supported, um, you know, five families from an adoptive family uh, this year. We did a toy drive and I wish I could share the pictures with you of just yeah. the immense, the immense amount of, you know, um, toys and, and clothes and support beds, mat you know, mattresses, everything that was shipped to our office. Um, and so while we've been working virtually, we used our office as a basically a storage building <laughs> for a while to have all these products shipped in and, you know, just a fabulous team in our HR department, our culture team who, um, helped organize and pull that together and then, you know, work through the delivery, which will happen over this next week too. And so um, it's an important part because I think as we are, you know, connecting, we're servicing, you know, health plan members, um, you know, across the United States. And a lot of these are underserved, you know, individuals. And so as we see the messaging that's coming back, the challenges that they're having, um, you know, gives us the ability to sort of personally connect around these things too. And so it is a big part of the purpose and the culture of our team. Now, do you have time to read any books and are there any that you would recommend if so? Um, a little bit. Um, I, I am very much a magazine or um, online skimmer. I will absolutely, uh, you know, take full credit for that. Uh, one that I'm actually just reading again with, um, you know, a group of team members. Um, we have a leadership group that we put together every quarter um, and it's called Our Iceberg is Melting. And so this is an old book, John Cotter, which is basically a cartoon about penguins. Yeah. And so um, it's something that we really look at every quarter as a team. Uh, but for those that haven't heard of it, it's a great book about change management. Um, and so it uses a really practical and kind of fun example to talk through how companies change and how companies evolve. Um, and as a startup company, right, and sort of moving through, we've gone through Series A, Series B, Series C, et cetera, growing from six associates to over 150, um, change happens all the time, right? Um, as, um, you know, as was stated by Mark Twain is that the only thing constant is change, right? So um, that's been something that's been in our culture and we want to prepare people for that. And I think that even goes back to your point back on upbringing is that, you know, things are going to change in our marketplace. You have to be okay with it. And the faster that we sort of understand and accept it, the faster we can develop a plan and the strategy on how to execute successfully there. Great. Well, Chris Nicholson, CEO and co-founder of Impulse Mobile, thank you for joining me today on the Health Biz Podcast. Thank you, David. Appreciate the time. You've been listening to the Health Biz Podcast with me, David Williams, president of Health Business Group. I conduct in-depth interviews with leaders in healthcare business and policy. If you like what you hear, go ahead and subscribe on your favorite service. While you're at it, go ahead and subscribe on your second and third favorite services as well. There's more good stuff to come, and you won't want to miss an episode. If your organization is seeking strategy consulting services in healthcare, check out our website, healthbusinessgroup.com.